They're everywhere, right? They're in soil, they're in water, they're in our skin, they're in our bodies. But if you're trying to kill a bacterium that's in your gut, then the best place to go is sewage because there's a lot of bacteria there. So you can ideally find the perfect predator to kill it. And that's what we did. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Promote the Hell Out of It. My name is Misael Trujillo and this is the podcast where I talk to people about subjects worth promoting, subjects we should all be talking about. And this episode is absolutely fascinating and in all honesty kind of mind-blowing. I talked to Dr. Stephanie Strafty, an infectious disease epidemiologist. She is also Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences and Harold Simon Professor at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine and she is co-director at the Center of Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, something that we actually go into a little bit in our conversation today. Her and her husband, Thomas Patterson, are also the authors of the book, The Perfect Predator, a scientist's race to save her husband from a deadly superbug. And with a book title like that, I don't think I need to tell you much more about what our conversation was about, right? We talk about phage therapy, what it is, why it's been overlooked, how it can help combat superbugs, we look at the situation that Dr. Stephanie Strafty and her husband found themselves in and how they managed to deal with it, both in a literal sense of, of what happened, but also emotionally and, and what kind of things we could be doing to help people we see suffering and in situations similar to these. The conversation is absolutely fascinating and I really do hope you enjoy it as much as I did. They're everywhere, right? They're in soil, they're in water, they're in our skin, they're in our bodies. Dr. Strathdy, it is absolutely wonderful to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. I've got to say, your book, The Perfect Predator, it sounds like an absolute medical mystery. And I think because of that, it deserves the introduction, it deserves the setting. Would you like to, to set the scene for us? Yes. Well, um, the first chapter describes one of the most harrowing experiences of my life. Um, I was in the um, intensive care unit with my husband um, where uh, we work, um, which is in San Diego, and he was dying of a superbug infection, which is basically a bacterial infection that is resistant to multiple antibiotics. In his case, it was resistant to every antibiotic, and our doctors, who were our friends, were caring for him, and they said there was nothing else they could do. And um, it hadn't really dawned on me that he was going to die. Um, and I was on the phone um, listening to some colleagues of mine at a retreat that I was supposed to be at, um, at another university. And one of them, who was a former university chancellor and a surgeon, he asked how Tom was doing during a break, and I told him everything that was going on. And then I said, oh, I have to run. I see the, the doctor's coming. And he thought that I'd hung up the phone, and I hadn't. And he turns to another of my colleagues at this meeting and says, has anybody told Steph that her husband is going to die? Oh, no. Yeah. That is definitely not how you want technology being used, is it? <laughs> well, he, he obviously would never have said that if he knew of that course. I heard. But, but it is what kicked me into gear to find what ultimately turned out to be a forgotten cure that had been, uh, you know, discovered a hundred years ago that was only being used in the former Soviet Union and parts of Eastern Europe. And that's, uh, that's really what the book is about. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I was going to ask. Why is it that phage therapy hasn't been heard about that much? Why had it fallen out of favor? Well, that's, to me, one of the most interesting parts of this book. And we get into the medical history a little bit. But so uh, phages are, are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. They're 100 times smaller than bacteria. 
And um, they were discovered in 1917 by a French-Canadian scientist, Félix Darrell. And, um, of course, back then, there was uh, only light microscopes. The electron microscope hadn't been invented yet. And, you know, he just hypothesized that whatever was killing these bacteria had to be a virus because it, it passed through uh, what's called a Pasteur filter. And, and so uh, he was um, a vagabond, vagabond scholar, as he's, he was described. He had no formal training. And um, he was ridiculed. And um, it wasn't until the electron microscope was discovered that his whole um, you know, hypothesis was borne out and vindicated. Um, but uh, in the meantime, he was using these phages to treat bacterial infections quite successfully, and he became uh, very famous. In fact, he was the inspiration for um, the book Aerosmith that won the, the uh, Pulitzer Prize. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes, back in the 1920s. Um, but then, you know, something happened. Penicillin was discovered in 1928. And unlike phages, which had to be matched to specific bacteria, in order for them to work. It is like there's a universal phage that kills um, all bacteria. Um, penicillin had these broad spectrum qualities that, you know, are, were quite attractive because they, you know, without a, a, a diagnosis, it can kill a, a number of different bacteria. Of course, we know now that that's not a great thing because it, it kills all the friendly bacteria in our microbiome as well. But back then, you know, penicillin was a wonder drug and, it, you know, it, it deserved that credit for a while. And that meant that phages were relegated to the back burner, except in uh, parts of the world where they couldn't get easy access to antibiotics. And this was, of course, around the time of World War II that penicillin came on the scene um, in around 1942 and it was treated as a war secret for a while. So um, the former Soviet Union was still using phages as was uh, Germany and, and, and others and um, then it got the reputation of being like pinko commie science and because of this geopolitical bias um, as well as the fact that it was discovered by this fellow who didn't really have any formal training. Yeah. Um, there was a cloud over phage therapy for decades. And so in the West, it was really abandoned. And there were no trials that were done to show like agencies like the Food and Drug Administration that it worked um, so that it could be licensed. So it was ex it, it's still experimental treatment in you know, Western Europe and in North America. And, I, and I've got to ask, how does sewage come into the equation? Well, that's the interesting thing, um, you know, because when you're looking for a phages to match specific bacteria that you want to kill, you've got to go find them in a place where there's a lot of bacteria. So um, there's 10 million trillion trillion phages thought to be on the planet. That's 10 to the power of 31. So they're everywhere, right? They're in soil, they're in water, they're in our skin, they're in our bodies. But if you're trying to kill a bacterium that's in your gut, um, then the best place to go is sewage because there's a lot of bacteria there. So you can ideally find the perfect predator to kill it. And that's what we did. So I could lit literally say that my husband is full of shit. <laughs> I think it's even funnier because I love finding these situations where they, it is an extremely serious situation we're talking about and it's something that could help so many people but they are often combined with something really funny that happens that makes it so special 
And I think your example is specifically that. It, it really stands out and is memorable because of, of the solution, how the solution comes about. Absolutely. And total strangers from around the world stepped up um, in you know, response to my plea for help that was um, you know, emailed around to phage researchers that were really at the margins of science. And, you know, uh, people from India, Switzerland, Belgium, you know, um, they all sent phages to uh, a lab in the U.S. at Texas A&M University. Um, and that, that lab, I had never met any of those researchers either, and they turned their laboratory into a command center looking for phages to kill Tom's superbug. And the U.S. Navy even joined in, which is amazing. So, you know, what I've said is that, that we're facing a global crisis where you know, right now about 1.5 million people every year are dying of superbugs. But by the year 2050, that's going to be one person every three seconds unless something drastic turns this around. And so if, if you know, all of these people, total strangers, can come around the world to save the life of one man, surely we can do it for the planet. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that statistic of 10 million by by the year 2050 is like it's such a high number and when when you consider that that's higher than cancer that's it's pretty ridiculous really and it really highlights how important this therapy could be absolutely and you know the uk has been leading the charge to uh, draw attention to the global crisis of, of superbugs and dame sally davies and the welcome trust for example have really been at the forefront and um, yet phage therapy is still experimental um you know in the uk as well and as a result of Tom's case, there was a spectacular case report um, that was published recently um, where uh, the first genetically modified phage was used to save the life of a 15-year-old girl living wow. outside of London who received a double lung transplant as a result of having cystic fibrosis and had a superbug that is a cousin to tuberculosis. And as a result of Tom's case... Her mom heard about it and asked the doctor if, if her daughter could get phage therapy because she was in hospice. I mean, clearly she was going to die. And we were able to uh, enlist the help of a um, scientist who had a whole library of phages that um, attack uh, similar bacteria to hers, and they had never been used in people, and they were all identified from students. Um, the one that was um, the most potent that ultimately saved her life was discovered on a rotting eggplant in South Africa, if you could believe what? it. So uh, this really is something that could could work, but what we need next are clinical trials to go beyond these individual case reports. Of course, and how is that looking? Is that looking like it's going to be happening soon? Well, there are clinical trials that are underway, and some more are being planned. These kinds of things, um, you know, take time. They take a couple of, of years, but uh, there is really an imperative. And uh, I think that um, infectious disease specialists are seeing that different infections that they used to be able to treat even a couple of years ago are increasingly fully resistant to antibiotics. And so um, phage is now being something that is people are turning to as perhaps, you know, an adjunct to antibiotics that should be pursued very vigorously. Of course. And do you think the medical field has this vigor towards getting it fi fixed? Because to some extent they feel guilty for the amount of antibiotics 
that were given out and the effect that had on superbugs? Well, I'm not sure that there's, uh, you know, a collective guilt within the medical community because, um, you know, certainly there is misuse of antibiotics in people. But the biggest problem uh, where we see antibiotics misused is in agriculture. About 70% of antibiotics in many countries are used you know, in cattle and in pigs um, and in chickens to make them grow fatter faster. So what people can do is choose antibiotic-free meat or, you know, um, reduce their, their meat consumption, um, you know, at least partially. Uh, but also to put pressure on, you know, the agriculture business to, um, you know, reduce and eliminate medically important antibiotic use in livestock, which is really fueling the superbug crisis. And, and does hygiene come into the equation when it, when it comes to, to superbugs? Are there things that we should be implementing to avoid them becoming worse? Well, I mean, at an individual level, hand washing is probably the most important thing that people can do. Um, and, you know, to be honest, most people don't wash their hands properly. They don't use soap or they, you know, just, uh, you know, take a few seconds. And if you have long nails, you know, dirt and, and bacteria get under your nails. So you really need to, you know, spend a good 30 seconds hand washing. Um, and... Um, ironically, some of the products that are used as hand sanitizers, if they contain a product called triclosan, they can actually promote, um, you know, resilience among bacteria. So, um, so we certainly need to be, you know, aware that um, this is an arms race between, you know, bacteria um, at a, an invisible level and phages have, have been co-evolving with them for millennia and so why not use them to our advantage and I, I want to touch on on the situation you were in when your husband was ill because it's one thing to to read for example that someone was about to die but uh, the actual situation he was in that must have, have been extremely scary for yourself of course for for him too but would you have any advice for someone that was having to look after someone in that kind of situation? Yes, um, you know, our book gets into a lot of detail about what Tom was going through and, and, you know, his hallucinations are included as he saw them and he said, you know, these are real in my mind. They're not like cartoons or it's not like an acid trip. You know, he grew up in the 60s, so he, he, knows, he knows what that was like. Um, so I think that, it, it, you know, because he was in the ICU for about four months and he was in the hospital for nine months, Myself and his daughter spent a lot of time with him, and we were shocked that, um, you know, a lot of people who are in the ICU don't have any visitors at all, and that was the most important thing for Tom. When he came out of his coma, he said that he felt the presence of people around him um, holding his hand. He said he felt like, a, a you know, just touching him you know, with our gloved hands, because obviously hey, we had infection control procedures we had to follow. But he said just that a simple touch was like an electric shock. And having so many people there around him, um, you know, we, we created a schedule so it wasn't too overwhelming, you know, made him feel like life was worth living for. And so that's, and so you can, you know, read um, or, um, you know, have music playing in the background. Um, we did all of those things. And um, it, he said that it made a difference. So um, I'd certainly recommend that. And at the hospital where Tom was, was um, stationed in San Diego, we were allowed to join rounds when the doctors, you know, get together and, 
you know, with the residents and nurses, and they go to each patient, and they do they do the rounds, and they go through the case and the treatment plan for the day, et cetera. And because I was allowed to join in rounds, I learned a lot about medicine because I'm not a medical doctor. I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, and I did help in this case, but certainly I, I got a crash course in medicine, and I think anybody who has the opportunity to, to join in and, and ask questions, and you also can offer the perspective of what you think that your loved one would want uh, under this, these um, you know, circumstances so that you can um, you know, make them more comfortable and, and even prevent medical errors. So it, it was very important. And how about yourself? Emotionally, that must be incredibly draining. Is there anything that, that you found helped you get through that time? Well, you know, I'm I'm the kind of person who's um, been very independent uh, my whole life, but I realized that I needed help. So um, I I saw a counselor, um, and I had you know friends who reached out and um, provided meals, and so we had to buy an extra freezer because we got so many casseroles brought over. But that was great because you just don't have the energy to cook; you're just exhausted. Um, and so having having somebody to talk to um, about um, you know, how to get through this on a day-to-day basis. And also, I mean, most people thought that Tom was going to die. And so I needed to prepare myself for that possibility as well. So, uh, you know, a grief counselor was um, sought uh, as well. And then, of course, Tom and I both had PTSD, as did his daughters. Um, and that's something that you aren't prepared for because, you know, people being in the hospital for a long time who have all these terrible ups and downs and being so close to death, you expect that they could have post-traumatic stress syndrome, but nobody had prepared us that the families could get it too. So we had to get treatment for that. There was something that stood out to me about about the initiation of everything. And it was, you're in Egypt and and you get sent to a clinic because there wasn't a hospital. Is that correct? Yes, yeah? yes, there was no hospital. So how does it logistically work to then go over to Germany with your husband so ill? Uh, that must in itself be an incredibly stressful situation to have to go through. Yes, and the first uh, bit of luck was that we had purchased travel insurance with um, a medevac option so that... Okay. Um, which basically pays for evacuation in the case of an emergency. So um, after Tom was admitted to this clinic, I called the travel insurance um, and their you know 24-hour hotline, and they basically followed the situation. And once they decided that you know he needed to be you know taken to a higher level facility, um, they got the wheels in motion. But it was it was terrifying. Tom was hallucinating at the time. He thought that El Shabaab was trying to kill him. Um, and that's because there had been a terrorist attack in Sharm el-Sheikh right before we went to Egypt in the first place. And uh, we almost canceled our trip, but he said, oh, no, it's the perfect time to go. There will be hardly any you know, visitors. And that was true, but we didn't think that the terror was going to come from within. It's so valuable to know what to do in that situation or how to help someone else who you see in that situation. And often people freeze when they see someone going through that. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And it is those little things that can sometimes make such a huge difference on what someone's going through. Yes, that's very true. And how about the the time it takes for the therapy to take effect? So you, you found 
what you needed? How long did it take? Or you didn't even know, I guess, at the start, it was what you needed. Right. We knew that this was kind of the last-ditch attempt to try to save Tom. One of the doctors described it as a Hail Mary pass at the end of a football game where there's like less than one minute left and the quarterback is blindfolded throwing a, a, you know, the football over 100 yards down and hoping that somebody will catch it. And <laughs> so they were very surprised that this worked. Nobody knew how long it was going to take. Um, from the day that I contacted um, total strangers asking them to donate phage to save Tom, um, to the day that we injected phage into his body, it was about three weeks. That's how quickly that was. And then from the moment that we injected phage, a billion viruses per dose into his body, he woke up three days later, lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. So it was very rapid. And the same um, case that I talked about earlier about Isabel Carnell Holdaway, who lives outside of London, she um, was able to leave the hospital within a week. That's how quickly the phage therapy worked in her case. So, you know, because there's billions of these phages, right? They're multiplying inside you and they're only killing the bad bacteria, leaving the good bacteria alone. And when they've done their job, then they're naturally excreted by the body. When you say miracle cure, you're literally talking about a treatment that the way it acts is like a miracle. It's so fast. That's incredible. Well, you know, I reserve the word miracle for bringing the, somebody who's dead back to life, uh, but uh, certainly it, was, it, it has been remarkable. And as a result of Tom's case, um, it's reawakened um, interest in phage therapy um, in the West. And um, I've met people who have said that we've saved their lives or their limbs. Um, this one man had 19 operations on his leg and it was going to be amputated and a company that formed as a result of Tom's case was able to find phage to match his bacteria, and within two infusions, his leg was saved. It was just like, I'm, I'm, you know, we think that maybe this is the reason we're on the planet. You know, sometimes the worst thing that could ever happen to you has a silver lining that changes not only your life but other people's as well. We we feel very privileged. Of course, of course. I wanted to touch on something that you said that the effect it has on afterwards. Because once the treatment gets delivered, that surely that wasn't it. There were still things going on. So, sorry, there's my phone. Uh, and, and that's funny because uh, in the book I say that uh, my ringtone is she blinded me with science. And so that's the proof <laughs> that just rang. Uh, yes, there was a lot going on in Tom's case. Um, you know, anybody who is receiving phage therapy in the West, um, you know, by definition has to be, um, you know, in a life-threatening condition. And so um, he, um, when he received phage therapy, he was on a ventilator, which meant his lungs were failing. He was on three different medications to keep his heart pumping. And he was um, on uh, about to receive kidney dialysis. I signed the consent form the same day that um, the phage therapy began, and it, it, it worked so quickly he never needed the dialysis. But his kidneys, you know, really took a hit. And so did his heart, um, and he's got numbness in his feet. So um, it took him several months to be able to, like, learn how to, you know, talk, walk, you know, all of those things that, you know, normal people do. And um, we are told that for every month that you're lying in a hospital bed, it takes five months to recover. So he was in the hospital for nine months. So you can do the math and that's, that means five years. So we're, you know, we're three and a half years out at this point and um, he is 
you know, back at work full time. We're traveling. We're we still have the Valley of the Kings on our bucket list, um, and we've been back to Africa. So um, we don't want people to think that they they should be so terrified of superbugs that they shouldn't leave the house. You can acquire these anywhere. I I love hearing that you're still traveling, and I love when when people talk about things in a way that is quite matter of fact. Life life throws things at you, and dealing with them and being able to carry on is such an important part of being able to enjoy what we do in life. Yes, I wanted to at least touch on the specific strain of superbug that your husband had, because uh, I remember watching uh, the TEDx talk you did, and you mentioned the nickname it got was Arachobacter. Was that right? Yes, Arachobacter, yes. Um, the full name of the superbug is Acinetobacter bomanii, and um, that's a bit more difficult to yes pronounce. it is <laughs> and um so the nickname arachobacter came because many veterans from the middle east were coming back with this in the early 2000s and unfortunately um it, that meant that uh they brought home not only their illness or their you know um, bombshell you know um injury but also this superbug which populated itself in all the regional hospitals in western europe and across the u.s so ironically now the most common place to acquire this superbug is actually in hospitals and clinics taking into account and, and the reason i mention it is because i wanted to draw attention again to the impact it has and to that's quite recent that that's going on so when we look at how valuable this could be as a cure how do we avoid it becoming the next big pharma money cash? How do we make sure that it, it can actually help people? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is ensure that phage um, goes through clinical trials and gets evaluated alongside antibiotics. In Tom's case and in several other cases, we actually saw that the phage um, helped resensitize the bacteria to antibiotics that it had been resistant to. So um, even if it fails in clinical trials, but its only purpose ends up being to resurrect a failing antibiotic regimen that had been on the shelf because of you know, antibiotic resistance, that's still a game changer. That's still yeah, incredible, yeah. Yes. Now, of course, um, you know, a natural product like a phage is hard to patent. Um, and that's another reason why it was likely, you know, not sought after by the pharmaceutical industry. Okay. Of course, they're very interested now. Because with Isabel's case being the first genetically modified phage to be successfully used to treat a superbug infection, that means that, that those phages um, can be patented. So, um, and then there's also um, people that are working on synthetic phage, and those uh, you know, can be patented as well. So these are different tacks that can be tried. Um, Certainly, we need um, investment to be able to bring phage therapy to scale. We also need... Um, manufacturing centers that can purify the phage and grow it up in in quantities um, to be able to you know address like an outbreak or uh, phage therapy on demand, and then we need phage banks as well because right now um, you know if someone has a you know obscure uh, bacterial infection they come to us and we need to find phages to match. And often, to be honest, I go to Twitter and I, you know, I'm crowdsourcing phage right there on the internet saying, does anybody have, you know, phages that are active to acromobacter or something like that? And um, it's, it, it is really quite amazing um, how people have responded to those requests and so um, it, without even being paid. So I think we owe a lot to the research community for their generosity. And if we're 
thinking about a, a timescale, a realistic timescale for this to, to possibly be helping people. We've talked, it's, it's, you've just mentioned everything that needs to go into it. How long are we realistically thinking? And is there anything individuals can do on a personal basis to help speed that up? Well, certainly I think, um, you know, there are policies moving forward to try to, um, you know, promote antibiotic stewardship, which is the more careful use of antibiotics, or to promote the development of new antibiotics. But what's really been forgotten is the alternatives to antibiotics like phage. And we should should be vigorously pursuing these. So um, you know, spreading the word, um, let's make phage therapy go viral. That's one of the reasons we, we wrote this book, because we didn't want phage therapy to be forgotten for another 100 years. So you know, spreading awareness of phage and asking, you know, funders to in invest in this area is, is important for everyone's lives because uh, most people who are dying of, of superbug infections are in developing countries and they don't have a voice. And so uh, we feel that, you know, it was our obligation because we were so privileged to have the resources and, and the connections to get people to help us that we need to do that for, for other people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that. I think it's it's beautiful to hear people go through that experience and come out of it the other end with something so valuable to give to the world. It really is. Well, and it really is um, something that is bonding us together. I mean, um, my new friend Isabel, uh, who lives outside of, of, of um, London, she wrote me on Facebook and said, when are you coming to visit? I'll make cupcakes. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And uh, her mother obviously is over the moon. Um, Isabel's now um, learning to drive. She works part time. She's just done her A level exams, and um, I couldn't be happier because um, you know she had very little hope of living, and that's proof right there that this is something that we need to be pursuing. I guess that refuels you. Hearing stories like that must be—you've already got so much motivation to do this, but it must give you that extra push to be like, "I need to do this. This is great." Yes, um, you know, my husband and I, um, our lives have been kind of turned upside down. Um, uh, we we go around the world um, telling our story and and the lessons that we think um, not just we have learned, but that medicine has learned from this. There is a, a major motion picture that's being planned as well as, as a documentary. So you should be hearing Phage um, a lot more in the future. And, and that's a good thing. Absolutely, yes. I wanted to touch on, on having that realization that you were going to work on the book. When did that come about? When did you at least decide that it was, it was going to happen? Well, when Tom was still in the hospital, a two-year-old was treated with Phage therapy um, to treat his superbug infection. Um, as a result of Tom's case. And, and Tom and I both started crying uncontrollably because that's when we realized that this was bigger than us and that it had the potential to help other people. So the, I had the inkling in the back of my mind that, that maybe someday I would write a book and I downloaded all 51 pages of Facebook entries that I, you know, around our story. And, but, you know, it was really something that I wanted to talk to Tom about. And he, you know, was still in the hospital and was for quite some time. And um, when he came out of the hospital in August 2016, nine months after this ordeal began, we started to talk about what had happened. And even though we went through the same ordeal, we had different experiences. And um, 
just to illustrate one of those times, um, he uh, was in a hospital in Germany initially, and uh, he was still able to eat, and we brought him all sorts of food, and all of a sudden he turned green and started throwing up this block projectile vomit that hit the wall. And, of course, I was screaming for the nurses, and everybody was running around. And he sat there looking very beatific and um, kind of staring out into space with a stupid grin on his face. And I, I just thought, what the hell is he thinking? And apparently, so nine months later, I find out that he thought that he was a Buddha and that, um, you know, he was on another plane and that, that he wanted to give the world a gift. So he opened his mouth and, um, and all of these silver little dancing ribbons fell out. And they were so beautiful that people were smiling and running around to pick them up off of the floor. And so I just looked at him. I said, are you effing kidding me? You know, like I thought if your head had turned around a couple times, you could have starred in the next Exorcist movie. So we laughed till we cried. And then we realized, you know, that we needed to get to know each other again and so we started to write our story um, he dictated to me because he wasn't able to write at the time and it was very traumatic for him um, and through that process we realized that that other people would want to hear about it too and so that's how it began that's wonderful and I, I, I'd love to touch on that writing process because you had so much going on at that time You've decided now to write the book. Your husband's in recovery. I, I guess in a way you're all in recovery still. Yeah. How do you fit that in? How, how did it work realistically trying to, to make that happen and getting it to a finished product specifically? Well, um, at first um, I was caring for Tom. I took a sabbatical from the university. And so it was that was a full-time job in and of itself. But I really felt like the book, I had to get it out of me. It was almost like, you know, I was driven so I got up every morning at 5 a.m. and I would write for a couple hours and then he would get up and have breakfast and then he would dictate to me about his hallucinations. And so I wrote them all down. So it took about six months to get that finished product. Um, we um, were connected to an agent fairly early on and that literary agent said, look, um, I really love the story, but you've never written a book before and so you might need some help. And so um, that's we did decide to get a co-writer involved and this is not somebody who rewrote the book or anything, but um, she basically helped retool it. So it, it was less of an illness memoir and more of a medical thriller. And to be honest, we didn't have to try very hard to create suspense because Tom had seven cases of septic shock and um, a lot of, you know, near death experiences. So we'll, we take the, the reader right through the whole experience. But we did have to edit some of that out because uh, people said, you know, it's too hard on the reader. And I was going, too hard on the reader? What do you think it was like in real life? Oh, my God. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's an intense read, but um, we've got great reviews. Um, a Amazon chose it as one of the top uh, 10 nonfiction books of 2019 so far. And, um, you know, it, it's a book that is uh, a wild ride, as one person describes it, but also where you learn something along the way. And and that's that that's a good thing. And and you mentioned listening to so many of his hallucinations. Is there anything you learn? that you, you wouldn't have thought you'd have learned from, from listening to someone's hallucinations? Well, Tom describes them as kind of being a blend of what's happening in real life but being distorted, um, along with, you know, mix of opiates and the toxins from the bacteria. 
And he said, you know, I could still hear you most of the time. And so when I asked him if he wanted to live later on in the course of this, when we were told that he wasn't going to be um, making it, um, I asked him to squeeze my hand if he um, wanted to live so that I would try to pursue some unorthodox options. And um, he said that, you know, he could hear scratchy Beatles music playing and he could hear my voice as if it was down a tube. Um, and he said at the time he thought he was a snake. I mean, it's, it sounds absolutely crazy, but he said he was a snake and he only had this one glowing light in his tail that was like, blinking on and off and that was maybe his heart or something. And he said that because snakes don't have hands, he didn't know where his hands were. And um, he wrapped his body around my arm and squeezed. And it took about a minute for that squeeze to come, but it was very strong. So I knew that he wanted to live. I didn't know he was a snake until, you know, much later in this process. <laughs> but that's another one of those crazy stories that we laugh and cry about. Um, and then that's when my journey began, where I just decided to, you know, do research on my own and try to find something that, that could save him. And God, uh, you know, knows that I never dreamt that it, it could have happened, but it wasn't me alone. It was really a global village of people that, that, that you know, stepped up to the plate to make this happen. Yeah, and, and I think there's so much to learn from your experience and to be applied to so many different types of experiences. Everything from having the insurance in place, which is, is so vital and I think a lot of people forget about, to how to, to look after someone in that situation. That, that minute that you waited for your husband to, to press your hand, that must have felt like a very long minute. It was. And, you know, someone asked me later, what would you have done if he didn't squeeze your hand? And I said, well, I guess I would have let him go. And she said, well, how would you have known that he could, couldn't have hurt you? And I said, well, I guess I wouldn't. So there, there's a lot of serendipity. And, you know, some people will say fate or God or whatever. Um, people, you know, see different things in our story. And, but all I know is that um, it, was, it was a very rare um, occurrence. And it, um, it, it really was a, a point of privilege for us that we had so many people step up to be able to help us. And that's why we want to pay it forward and try to help others. And it's so encouraging to hear the whole story and to get to talk to you. Something that I, I really like asking all of my guests, and that I think is incredibly applicable. Listening to me is one of the most vital parts of, of life. It's, it's how I try and change who I am as a person and, and move forward. What advice would you give to someone else about listening, about how to really listen to someone? Well, that's a tough question, but I, I think that um, the most important thing that you can do when, you, when you're listening to someone else's ordeal is to try to imagine yourself in that situation and, um, and really, you know, be mindful about that. Um, you don't really know what you would do unless you're in the situation. And so some people have said, oh my God, you know, I could never have done what you've done. I said, you don't know because, um, somehow when your back is up against the wall, um, you find the energy to do it. I know we hear about, you know, women lifting cars because their baby is underneath trapped or something like that. And, you know, they weren't a bodybuilder, but, you know, you get this incredible adrenaline surge and um, we're capable of so many things. So um, I think that, that that's, 
an important lesson in and of itself. And is there anything that, that you would change about what's happened? Either in the way that you reacted to something or even would you not go to Egypt in the first place? Well, I don't think, you know, uh, if, if we hadn't gone to Egypt, he wouldn't have acquired the bacterial infection he did. But you know what? Um, we also wouldn't have had the opportunity to save other people's lives. So we wouldn't, we wouldn't actually change that, believe it or not. Um, I think that if I had known that this was going to be a nine-month ordeal instead of something that was a couple of weeks long, I, I certainly would have planned things differently. I mean, I brought two kittens home into our lives in, you know, at, right after Christmas thinking that he was going to be home the next week. Well, <laughs> you know, I, that obviously didn't happen. So you really need to pace yourself and, um, and know that sometimes it's a marathon and not a sprint. Um, but, you know, one of the other things that's really wonderful about our story is that our chancellor at the University of California, San Diego, um, gave us pilot money to open the first dedicated phage therapy center in North America. It's called the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, or IPATH. So if anybody's listening who has a superbug infection that's not responding to antibiotics, they can contact us at ipath at ucsd.edu, ipath at ucsd.edu, and we'll see if we can help. There are a couple of other phage therapy centers. Um, there's one in um, uh, Poland, and there's two in the Republic of Georgia that have been working for decades, and there's um, another in Belgium. So um, we um, collaborate with these centers um, depending on the case. So um, this is a, a global effort. And the links to the email address and to your website, to the book, everything will be underneath for everyone to get hold of as well. With something like IPATH, how, how difficult is, is it to get something organized on that scale? Well, right now we only have enough money for one staff person. Um, so I still field a lot of uh, emails and so do the doctors that... Um, help Tom and have come to treat other patients. So um, we're actively fundraising. Um, and so uh, if anybody out there has deep pockets, um, we'd love to hear from you. Well, Dr. Strathdy, it's been such a privilege getting to chat to you. Is there anything that you want anyone to go away with the conversation with? Well, I think that um, the most important thing for people to realize that that the global superbug crisis, that is antimicrobial resistance, is a bigger threat than climate change in our lifetime. And in fact, the two issues, climate change and antimicrobial resistance, are linked because with, with global warming, we're going to see more superbugs, not less. So um, it's something that deserves all of our attention. Yes, absolutely. And, and I love ending on that because I've actually recorded two podcasts today and they've both mentioned global warming. And uh, I know that Donald Trump would be really annoyed at that, which is very fitting because I was reading about your husband thinking that Donald Trump uh, going for president was a hallucination of itself. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, in fact, the Huffington Post uh, wrote that in their article because when Tom came out of his coma and could finally you know, speak again after the ventilator was removed, he said, well, what did I miss while I was in a coma? And I said, well... 
Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee to be the president <laughs> of the United States from the Republican Party. And we saved your life with purified sewage from Texas. And he said, and he said, oh my God, I'm hallucinating again. <laughs> uh, well, it's been so wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. They're everywhere, right? They're in soil, they're in water, they're in our skin, they're in our body. Thank you so much for checking out that episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please give it a share because it is a really important subject to spread around and to be talking about. Give us a follow. Give us a like, leave us a review if you're listening from Apple Podcasts because it all really helps spread the message, not only of the podcast, but of all the guests and the topics that we have on it. And if you did enjoy this episode, here are a couple more that you might also enjoy. I recently talked to Dr. Rick Lines about international drug control and whether it's in violation of human rights. I also had Dr. Matt Lodder on the show talking about tattoos and the cultural perception through history and whether it's changed or not. I've had Richard Heaven talking about the Merchant Navy and what life is like at sea. And one more that I will recommend if you enjoyed this one, I had Benita Madowska on the show talking about what sharing economy is and the benefits it could have for society. So go check them out if you get the chance because I think you will really enjoy them. And catch you soon. They're everywhere, right? They're in soil, they're in water, they're in our skin, they're in our bodies. But if you're trying to kill a bacterium that's in your gut, then the best place to go is sewage because there's a lot of bacteria there. So you can ideally find the perfect predator to kill it. And that's what we did.